the enslavement of Black Africans to the Arab world during the Trans-Saharan slave trade throughout the 7th to 19th centuries has had significant ramifications for Afro-Arabs and Black Africans in the region. More recently, the fatal murder of George Floyd in May 2020 prompted discussions about the phenomenon of anti-Black racism worldwide. This is particularly true in the Arab world, where Afro-Arabs and Black Africans in and out of the region have turned to social media to speak out about the existence of anti-Black racism in their communities. Despite the extensive history of this phenomenon, little research has been made connecting the legacy of race following the trans-Saharan slave trade and how it negatively impacts the lives of Black individuals in the Arab world today. The aim here is to highlight the ways in which social media is being used to bring to light this phenomenon in the form of a podcast titled Online Activism in Combating Anti-Black Racism in the Arab World. The following segments will start with our first guest speaker for today, Huda Miziodat. Huda is a Tunisian researcher, journalist, and anti-racist activist who covered the uprisings and their aftermaths in Tunisia and Libya for international outlets, including Al Jazeera English, CBC, and BBC between 2011 and 2018. She is a co-founder of ADAM, the first Black Tunisian association, and as the voice of Tunisian Black Women Collective. Hoda is currently pursuing a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science from the University of Toronto. Hoda, thank you very much for being present with us today. Thank you, Ms. Reid, for uh, inviting me to, to talk about this uh, topic of anti-Black racism. Recently, there has been much more attention on the phenomenon of anti-Black racism in the Arab world especially following the global hashtag Black Lives Matter movement, following the fatal murder of George Floyd in May 2020. In your opinion, what is anti-Black racism? And how does it differ from other forms of racism slash racial discrimination? Well, anti-Black racism in general, whether practiced, you know, by people who are not, of, um, who are not Black, is the fact that the perpetrator focuses on the fact that a black person is considered inferior enough for him or for her to subject him or her to maltreatment. And it's this 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 type of racism permeates all uh, the lives of many black people around the world, whether in the Western world or the non-Western world. So a lot of black people uh, whether in the diaspora or in Africa, they do suffer from this form of racism from their own people sometimes. For example, in the Arab world, in the same way, they would face the same type of racial discrimination in, let's say, Western countries. And so it, it becomes more uh, visible because of the way it is being practiced, not only in specific countries, but in black people are considered as minorities in their own societies. Could you provide some real life, everyday examples of the ways that anti-blackness negatively impacts the lives of Afro-Arabs and black Africans in the Arab world today? Okay, that's uh, that's a good question. I think anti-blackness 
as I said earlier, is is something that does not is not only limited to the type of anti-black racism we see in the West, but it's something that uh, ha that has become more and more visible in the Arab world, at least in the last decade, with in, in the incidents of black people being um, harassed, being attacked by um, by some uh, by by some some in the um, in Arab societies, be it in North Africa or the Middle East, and we can see that in different forms. You know, uh, it ca it can be violent. You know, as um, from you know some some incidents of Southern Africans who have been killed, for example, in certain countries in North Africa, whether in uh, Libya or in Algeria, in Tunisia or in Morocco, to the most subtle one where you have. TV, for example, um, shows you know portraying black people as inferior or as or as, um, uh, as or mock them as being uh, um, as as being as being closer to the animal than human beings, but also as as creatures you know who are not smart enough or sometimes as foolish, enslaved, but also uh, servants and in uh, many Arab. Um, feminist houses. It impacts also um, black women because, again, going back to slavery, uh, black women, uh, especially from African descent, living in Arab countries, you know, um, they they suffer some kind of double discrimination because of the because of being women, but also because of being black, and that also goes back to slavery and how a lot of black women have been uh, used as concubines in in uh, in. Um, in slave societies, whether in North Africa or even in, in countries like Turkey, where you know the slave trade was flourishing at the time, so these are some of the examples that I can think of. Uh, but there are others, you know, a lot, a lot of the anti-black racism in the Arab world, you know, uh, has also been informed by what, uh, but the same type of racism that is seen in the West and how blacks are being, you know, portrayed in popular culture as being lascivious, sexually available, and um, physically, you know, uh, stronger than white people. So all these images that come from Western media also have impacted impacted the way the way Arab societies look negatively at um, Black Africans, but also Afro-Arabs. And, and I don't see the difference because both of them are treated more or less in the same way, even if, I have to say, Black Africans are usually mistreated worse than Afro-Arabs because of their nationality. For example, if you're a Congolese, for instance, in Tunisia or in Algeria or in Libya, you're treated way worse than if you're a Black Libyan because of your nationality. So, so uh, these are one of the, one of the, one of the instances of um, how um, uh, Blacks, you know, are being treated in, uh, in the Arab world today. As I said, you know, media, but also in education where they are totally invisible and they're they're not seen as as um, as good enough, for example, to to become um, to take you know um, important you know positions, for example, in whether in, in in the government or in public institutions, because again of the stereotypes of blacks not being good enough or not smart enough, you know, to take these jobs. Um, so my next question for you is, you, you kind of uh, touched on the origins of anti-blackness in the region. So why is it important that we talk about it? I think it's important because it's part of the history of the Arab world in general. 
if you want to reconcile with the history of a country that has suffered from the invisibility of sections of its population, you need to include everyone. And we live in a world, globalized world, where people, they learn about their identities, about other, uh, other nations or other, other, um, other um, uh, ethnic groups through, you know, the internet. And I think the younger generation has got this kind of curiosity more than the older one. So it's part of this kind of re-education that needs to be done in Arab countries, in a globalized world. Arab people, in particular young people, are, are um, they have this intellectual curiosity that they're the older generation that don't have to learn about um, issues of identity that usually they don't come as something you know uh, very urgent to talk about. And I guess the sort of what Arab Spring has uh, made this topic more urgent to talk about. And in the last decade, it has become uh, more or less the most heated topic, you know, whether in in social media or in popular culture or, or even even in political political scene. When given the fact that there have been all these incidents that were targeting people of black descent. And so um, the democratization period was was conducive for such a discussion to be uh, to be put on the table, um, and um, uh, and uh, I think it's important now because, especially after the death of George Floyd, a, a lot of people they started to question their own misconceptions about black people. Like how come in the U.S., which is a democratic country, for, has been there for for many many years, and still they 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 have the issue of anti-black racism, anti and violence against black people. It's 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 no longer uh, an American issue. It's a human rights issue that impacts the Arab world because they're part of the system where uh, racism uh, permeates their their daily lives. So I think it's important for for, for, for the Arab world to revisit their identity, that it's not only this fixed Arab identity, but it's it's this uh, it's it's having this conversation about the place of black people in our societies is important in order to reconcile at least with the, with part of that of that history, in particular the history of slavery and its aftermath. Um, you are the co-founder of Adam, the first Black Tunisian Association and of the Voice of Tunisian Black Women Collective. Could you talk more about these initiatives and the intersections between anti-racist activism and feminism? Okay, yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the, um, the blessings of uh, quote unquote, the Arab Spring is uh, for the first time we had the opportunity to talk about identity. And in Tunisia, the issue of identity has never been put on the table. It's only after 2011 that we started to talk about democracy and transitional justice. And so I uh, I was lucky enough to have been in Tunisia during the Tunisian revolution to co-found, you know, the first Tunisian uh, uh, Black Tunisian Association, Adam, which uh, aims to uh, bring the issue of racism and especially anti-Black racism to the surface for a lot of non-Black Tunisians uh, who, unfortunately, a lot of them, they live in denial that there that could be anti-Black racism, especially targeting uh, Black Africans, especially from Sub-Saharan Africa. So, um, so, so it was 
um, it was this initiative to be able to to draw the attention of Tunisian people, but also Tunisian authorities, to the to the to, to this elephant in the room that is anti-black racism, and it, it built little by little in. Um, to include even non 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 black Tunisians who were like allies in 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 the fight against anti black racism. Of course, it wasn't easy because um, there was a lot of um, uh, resistance from from public opinion that the issue of racism should not be a priority. But it was put inside the human rights framework. Uh, it wasn't about being black or white. It's about human rights. Uh, abuses should be called out, in, and in particular, anti-black racism. So that that was one of the objectives for uh, for founding Adam. But uh, later on, with the voice of Tunisian black women, it was um, was inspired by the uh, the Me Too movement in the U.S. and um, which had resonated in Tunisia in 2019 by the Tunisian Me Too movement called Anazeda, in which you know a white Tunisian woman had. Um, sued um, a Tunisian parliamentarian uh, because he sexually harassed her, and so um, me and other Black Tunisian women thought like we we need to make our voices heard because we never felt as Black Tunisian women that we would we were represented by the feminist movement, which was more of a white, uh, privileged, uh, middle class movement that doesn't understand what it means to be Black and a woman. So we we thought it would be uh, would be something would be um, more representative for us Black Tunisian women to to have uh, this initiative, which which uh, talks about our intersectionality in an Arab country where it can be uh, Arab, you're a Black, and you're a woman. And these things, you know, cannot be tackled, you know, within the framework of, uh, you know, um, uh, an Arab feminism, which has always ignored you know, uh, race as something that could be important in the fight against, you know, against misogyny and anti-black racism. And my final question for you is, where do we go from here? How do we go about combating anti-black racism in our own communities? My only hope is that civil um, society in the Arab world, they, they remain the, the last glimmer of hope when it comes to um, combating anti-black racism. Uh, it has to be done through sensitizing, sensitizing um, the communities, uh, different communities, be it in the black community, but also other, you know, uh, communities, including, for example, the LGBT communities or other uh, religious communities um, who are not who are not Muslim, for example, you know, Christians or Jewish or um, uh, other ethnic minority groups, you know, uh, within Amazigh or the Kurds, the Kurds. I mean. Having this uh, this open conversation with different with other communities and building allyship with them and alliances with them, it's a, is is important for 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 people for 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 the Arab world to be sensitized to the issue of anti-black racism. And I think it is it has worked in Tunisia because of thanks to the to the democratic transition that the country has undergone since 2010 until recent 2020 before before the coup into um, the last summer, but it's not yet taken for granted. You know, it's, um, it's a long battle that, uh, that, that takes a long, a long time. And uh, there needs to be also government um, will to, 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 to be able to 
and I mean, at least to, to curtail, you know, the anti-black racism within the communities, but also within the system itself. My next guest speaker is Amuna Ali, a Somali Yemeni anti-racist activist. Born and raised in the United Arab Emirates, Amuna is a founder of the social media page at Black Arabs Collective, an Instagram page which serves as, quote, a platform to share the stories and amplify the voices of Black Arabs. Amuna holds two master's degrees, one in innovation and change management and another in sports management. Hi, Amuna. Thank you very much for being with us today. My first question for you is, what inspired you to start at Black Arabs Collective? The reason the reason I started it was it was not because it's something I studied or something that I understood or something that I thought, you know, like it was it just it's something that I felt necessary to do because, you know, again, like growing up in this part of the world and like you said, it, the experiences of, of Black Arabs going completely unnoticed and unspoken of. Actually, the existence of Black Arabs altogether is completely ignored. And then there's this willful ignorance about the racism that happened in the Arab world. And and there's this socialized racism that we have, that we've accepted. It's part of our language. It's part of the way we function. It's part, it's part of the way we view each other. And they're okay with that. They're okay with this socialized racism. They're not okay with being called out on it. And so when the brutal murder of George Floyd happened and, you know, the entire world you know, was angry and there was a there was a global conversation about race and, and racial injustices happening. The context of these conversations in this part of the world, which was the first time I'd ever even witnessed a conversation about race happening in this part of the world, the context was always the West. And it's very easy. It's so easy to point a finger at the West. But the truth of the matter is, how about we look at our own backyards? How about we confront our own internal biases in the way that we function in our society? And so when I saw the resistance, when, first of all, when I saw that how most Arab celebrities or like influencers way of like showing solidarity was doing blackface and posting that on social media, when I saw that that's where, like that the, that's the level we're at, I was like, oh honey, oh, this is bad. Oh, this is, this is terrible. And it wasn't like there was one or two I had like screenshots of like at least five or six, five or six, and they were all over 150,000 followers. These are people, not people that were ignorant and that were like from a village. These are people who have teams, who have sponsors, who have brand deals, who have had, who are actually considered very successful kind of fashion, whatever, you know what I mean? And, and these are people who did not feel the need to research for 15 seconds on whether or not that was appropriate or whether or not that was a way of showing solidarity. And that's when I was like, oh boy, so maybe maybe I should put this on my shoulders to educate people because nobody is doing it. We are out here deflecting, denying, and gaslighting the Black community, and it's not stopping. And that's why I saw the Black Arabs Collective, so I can like really push, like shove it in their faces to be like, you are racist. You have socialized racism. You have accepted racism as part of your zeitgeist and ecosystem. And it needs to fucking stop. 
Um, so you mentioned the socialized aspects of racism, and I grew up in the United States, so I'm very comfortable with the, the U.S. context, and I've spent some time in the Arab world, uh, but not extensively, so I was just wondering if you could kind of expand more on the socialized... Uh... So, for example, to this day, to this day, blackface is seen on Arabic TV. We We have socialized using racial slurs and have accepted them and the gaslighting that will come to you you call people out and call them racist for using these words for example in the gulf region where i grew up a black person would be referred to as how how means uncle on like the mother's side Mm -hmm. it also in some like cultures in like the levant uh they call uh, a beauty spot And they will be quick to deflect and be very upset when you tell them that that's racist. Because the truth of the matter is, this is a very, very racist word. And then you sit them down and you explain to them. The reason they are called khal is because, and trigger warning, this is very painful. These were men who were enslaved and they were castrated so they could serve the women of the family. Mm. And because they were no longer considered men, they were allowed to be sitting in the women's quarters and they were allowed to serve the women and hang out with the women. And therefore, the children growing up, they would consider them uncle on the mother's side. And when you sit people down and you tell them this, they'll tell you, no, 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 it's because of habit al And it's like, it isn't. Mm. And you're racist. Jeez. And get, like, get it together. Yeah. There's a can- there was a type of candy. It was like a marshmallow covered in chocolate. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. And it was socialized and culturally normally called Basil Abed, the head of a slave. Oh. Because no. it was it was chocolate. No, no. And if you bite into it, the white marshmallow from it like inside would, would, would come out. And like socialized racism. Mm. You know, watching TV, any kind of like mainstream Arabic media, NBC channels, their NBC channels are extremely popular even outside of the Arab world. Like I have had friends in Ethiopia, who are Habesha, 100%, no Arab in them, telling me, oh, we used to love, like, watching, like, we grew up watching English movies on NBC2. So to this day, the NBC channels, they're, 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 the, the HQ is in Saudi Arabia, but these are, like, very, very successful TV channels. To this day, they show blackface, and they depict black people in a very ugly and gross and stereotypical manner. You will see a non-black individual in blackface, playing a Sudanese character in a gross stereotypical way where he is either lazy or dumb or subservient or unintelligent, you know what I mean? And a black woman in all of these, and and like Egyptian cinema is Hollywood of the Arab world. And you have seen it. There is the Bawa, which means the doorman. There is the Shahala, which is the maid. And there's usually some sort of like sexual commodity, some sort of like prostitute girl, you know, when, when, the, when the main guy is going through a hard time and he wants to go to a bar somewhere, the girl who tries to pick him up and who is a sex worker is always black. And it's like, have we not grown out of this, you guys? Wow, wow, wow. And, and, and this is completely socialized and accepted. And this is this happens to this, like, uh, as recently as Ramadan of this year, there was a hidden camera show. And this is supposed to be like like peak comedy, peak, peak, peak comedy. There's a hidden camera show where an Egyptian non-black woman pretends to be a Sudanese woman by painting herself black and wearing a Sudanese thobe 
and she's sitting in, in a like little uh, micro bus in Egypt and she's being gross and belligerent. And this is supposed to be comedy. I don't know where the comedy is. There's a hidden camera and she's just being gross and belligerent. She pulls out an entire bottle of whiskey out of her bag, like proceeds to drink it out of the bottle. And then she has a kid with her. She takes an empty jar. This is very gross. She has like the kid pretend to be peeing in it. And then she goes ahead and she wipes her hands on the passenger sitting next to her on the bus to get a reaction out of him because this is peak comedy for us. This is what comedy is. This is what, you know. Um, so my next question for you are, is, what are the pros and cons of using social media to address anti-Black racism in Arab communities? Honestly, the pros are, it's there. You know, being able to connect with people, being, being able to cultivate community, being able to, you know, create change, even if it's, you know, minute, by connecting with people, by giving space to people to kind of, not feel alone for me it's it's been it's been extremely cathartic on a personal level because for the first time in like 30 in my 30 years i was able to connect with someone on like my little childhood traumas of being the only black girl in a school of 700 students and i thought you know i was the only girl in the world who experienced because it's very nuanced you know what i mean my experience was very very specific and being able to share like all these similarities with, with individuals from across the region who also went through similar things has been beautiful. The cons though, obviously it's, it's, it's very, nobody takes it seriously. And that, that in my inability to have access to a broader audience. And when I say that I'm talking about, for example, when I, when I talk about allyship, my point is it is about individual action. It is about you as a non-black individual, having the, the difficult conversations with your mom and dad, for example. These are people that will never, ever have access to me, and I will never, ever have access to them because they're probably the ones watching the racist content on MTV, and you are someone who sees my content on social media. And my inability to reach the, the mainstream media level is what is a con to me about social media um, kind of activism and the work that I do. But that's the, it's one of very few calls, you know, outside of being doxxed that one time. What do you believe are constructive ways to engage in offline anti-racist um, activism in our own communities? Look for organizations that organize, organizations that are organized, organizations that work with community initiatives, try volunteering, try kind of networking through kind of uh, the work that you do. For me, it's incredibly difficult because I started the Black Arabs Collective during the pandemic after the murder of George Floyd. And like in the UAE, you cannot like have demonstrations or protests because freedom of speech is not something that's, you know, legal here. That's not something that is practiced at all. And so you can actually get in trouble with the law by trying to practice your activism offline. But anywhere else, else in the world, I would say go out there, connect with people who are like-minded and your community will find you. You will, you will create your tribe based on who you are and what you put out into the world. My fourth question for you is, um, where do we go from here? We continue the work. We continue the fight. You know, people tell me 
do you think this is going to change? Do you think, you know, you think your work is going to do something? And it's like, if I didn't believe it, then I wouldn't be doing what I do. I absolutely believe that we will be the generation to change the world. And if it's not, it's going to be our children. If it's not, it's going to be their children. Because we have to keep the help going and we have to continue the work because otherwise we will have, we'll just, we will continue with the same racist patterns that are reductive and damaging and traumatizing and divisive. I would like to end the podcast by thanking both of my guest speakers for taking time out of their busy schedules to discuss this very important topic with us today. Thank you for your insightful comments, courage, and continued activism. In the words of Angela Davis, quote, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview? A program episode or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.